Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 tonight. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The message of Hebrews 2 was captured in that song we just sang. Hebrews 1 was intended to captivate your heart by his beauty. Uh, That you might not be drawn to idols, but be drawn to him and cling to him. Here in chapter 2, we come to the first warning passage in Hebrews. There are numbers of them throughout. People in the church always need to be warned when there are dangers to us spiritually. We also come to the first exhortation in Hebrews, the first command. Chapter 1 didn't tell you to do anything. It just told you about Jesus. Now at chapter 2, verse 1, he tells you what to do with that. Because when we are in danger, we need to do something. We need to take action. That's what he says. So what's the danger they were in, we might be? And what do they and we need to do? Let me invite you to consider that from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that you would give us the ear of a disciple. Give us ears to hear. Speak truth to our hearts and our minds. Protect us and do so by helping us to respond rightly to your warnings and to embrace Jesus in all his glory. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, he warns them because people in the church need to be warned not to drift away from the gospel. That's what he says, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention, he says, to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And that word drift away means to slip away. It can mean, it can be used in the context of letting um, something slip from one's mind. Uh, Letting a ring slip from your finger, water slipping out of a hole in a bucket and just disappearing. Here, it has a nautical sense, and that's how most of your translations have taken it, and I'll explain why later. Uh, There's a wonderful preacher named Dick Lucas who tells the story of how when he was a much younger man, he served in the Royal British Navy as an officer on a mining ship 
which had the nerve-wracking task of patrolling shipping lanes in the Mediterranean Sea and clearing away hundreds of mines that were sinking so many ships. That activity still goes on today. On a mining ship, perhaps the most important job is that of the navigator. He has to guide the ship with pinpoint accuracy so that they stay within the lines as they move back and forth in areas they've already cleared as they pursue new targets to clear away new explosives. And if they do their job properly, or if they don't do it properly, and they, they move outside the lines, then disaster could result as disaster has resulted on various occasions. In fact, Lucas, uh, as he tells the story, disaster did happen in his own day for a number of them because they drifted. A strong mid-ocean current pushed the ship uh, just slightly, even imperceptibly, imperceptibly off course, when they thought they were going all right. And the point, of course, is this. In mine-clearing operations, drifting off course can get you killed And the writer of Hebrews is saying it is just like that in the Christian life. If you drift away, it can be deadly. And so it is dangerous. And so he he gives them antidotes to try to prevent the drift. He, uh, at least is the way I want to outline it, he highlights three things they are to do so that they don't drift away from Jesus and the gospel. And those three things are what we want to study tonight. In verse 1, he says... Pay much closer attention to the gospel. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Contemplate your certain severe punishment if you reject the gospel. And thirdly, he says, Consider God's confirmations of the truthfulness of the gospel. I want to look at those three things with you tonight. Verse 1 Pay much closer attention to the gospel, he says. Verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, here's another nautical term, which is why the other was translated uh, drift. This one can be used for mooring a ship or tying it up. We must be tied up, he says. We must be moored to Christ, he says. We've got to pay closer attention here to the message about Jesus. We aren't to be like, or we we aren't, he's saying, like boats floating in a calm lake with no current and no breeze remaining stationary. But we are like boats on a river always being pushed around. In other words, spiritually speaking, the natural state of the world and of the human heart is not to stand still. It is always moving downhill or downriver. We're on a river, he's saying, with a current, and we are people with a personal inclination to drift downstream away from heaven and towards hell, away from Jesus. Don't think you can just float through life ignoring Jesus and still be saved, he's saying, because then you're really floating away from him. 
You either hold on to him or you lose him, he's saying. It's a very serious message. One is the path of life and one is the pathway that leads to death. A dead log drifts with the tide. Why? It's dead. It can do no other. And it's a sign of death that it does so. But a boat can be tied to a dock if there's someone alive caring for it. Which describes you. Care for your own soul, he says. Care for yourself, he says. Pay much closer attention to Jesus. This is, as we said, the first command in Hebrews because salvation is found in no one else. And the Jesus he wants you to tie yourself to is the Jesus of chapter 1. And, he will, and, and we should remind ourselves, this is the Jesus we're to pay much closer attention to. What has he said about this Jesus? He has said in chapter 1 that Jesus reveals God to us better than even the Old Testament prophets. Because he's the son of God where they were just prophets. He says that Jesus is better than the angels because the angels are just God's servants. They just do what God tells them to do. But Jesus is the one who tells them because Jesus is in fact God. In fact, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the outshining of the brilliance of the glory of God. And when you see Jesus, you're seeing God on display. He's in fact the exact representation of the essence and nature of God. In fact, he goes on to say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Speaking of Jesus, he's deity, he's God. And what did he do? He, having made purification for sins, he, having come down to be a creature, to die on a cross, to bring about cleansing, For our sins, he was raised and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the creator of all things, the controller of all things. He is the victorious ruler over all God's enemies. And he's the heir of all things, chapter 1 says, just, just to hit some of the highlights. Everything is given to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. Anything good you could ever hope to have is found in Jesus. And you must be bound to him. You must belong to him if you are to enjoy what he has to offer and delights to share. And to neglect, that's his other word. You saw it in verse 2 or 3. Don't neglect this great salvation. To neglect it is to be careless about it. I'm concerned about Jesus. It's the opposite of paying attention to. So he's saying, look, we need, to, we need to keep a firm grip on the gospel. We need to embrace Jesus and persevere in believing him. It's not enough to say that long ago you said you believed in Jesus. Are you believing in Jesus right now? Is always the question. This faith in Jesus is Certainly, first and foremost, passive or receptive. It flows out of the poverty of spirit that comes from knowing that you're spiritually bankrupt. That you have nothing to offer God. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Why? They know they've got nothing to offer God but their sin. But that God has everything to offer them in Jesus. And so they look to Jesus. And they say things like, Lord, have mercy upon me and remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And so it's at its most basic, faith is, it's the empty, outstretched hand of a beggar. Simply receiving a gift, relying on Christ to save. But faith is also active. It grabs hold of Jesus and it holds on to Jesus. Saving, true saving faith perseveres in believing in Jesus. And he's calling us to persevere. Jesus did it when he said in John 8, 32 and 33, he put it like this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so the writer here is not playing games. He's not playing games with our souls and he's not playing games with words. He's talking about real people in the church hearing about Jesus, but falling away, drifting away. He's not warning them about a danger that doesn't actually exist. He's warning them about a danger that does actually exist. It's one of the most dangerous things uh, and one of the greatest blessings to grow up in the church. And all your life, here, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and to be called to follow him, to trust in him. That is a beautiful privilege. And it comes with a great responsibility to do so. As one pastor put it, drifting is dangerous because it's so quiet, it's so easy, and yet it's so damning. All you need to do to go to hell is do nothing because the current is always moving. It's always pulling you away. And if you're a Christian, you feel that in your own heart. That current is running in your heart. There's the current of the Spirit of God at work saying come and believe and and inviting you to rest in Him and trust in Him, of course. But there's another current, another stream. We are not perfect people and our hearts are divided. There's always a tug of sin pulling us away. And it may just be the case that there are people in this room right now where this describes you. Where you are just drifting, you're just floating, and you think that's just fine, and you're distracted, and you don't know the danger that you're in. You understand maybe about others, what you want to admit about yourself. The sad truth is in the American church today, there are many adrift. Many who have have departed from Christ. Thousands, those who study these things, thousands leave the American church every week. That is often the case, not exclusively so, often the case where the churches themselves have quit believing the gospel and quit preaching the gospel. And the minister doesn't even believe the gospel. That's often the case, but it's not always the case. A recent Pew Research study shows that nearly 25% of Americans now consider themselves atheists or agnostics with no religious affiliation. Four out of five of those people say that they have left some form of Christianity. Now listen, if that descri- if you're an atheist or an agnostic, we're delighted that you're here. We want you to hear. You are, you are welcome to sit among us and to think about these things as long as you want to. We'd be happy to try to answer any questions that you have. 
But we need to remember that people by the boatload are walking away from Jesus in this generation in America. But our hope for the church is not the Christianity of America. And we don't need to drift away like so many are doing. In fact, every day in Asia, every day in South America, every day in Africa, tens of thousands every day are coming to embrace the hope that we have in Jesus. The fastest growing place in the world for the Christian church are those three places. And it's also true today that more Muslims are turning to faith in Christ than perhaps ever before in the history of Islam. And across the places we hear of in the news every day. And it is also true that Christianity has tripled in its numbers since 1910 when roughly 600 million could have been classified as believing in Jesus to over 2 billion in just 100 years. There are many people not drifting away but clinging to Jesus why should they and not you why should that be the case may it not be the case for any of us that's the first thing he says don't drift away the second he says is found in verses 2 and 3 And here he invites us to contemplate our certain severe punishment if we reject the gospel. When he says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's he talking about here? The message given or declared by angels. What, what is that? What does he mean? Well, that's the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. Now, if you were to turn to Exodus 19 and 20, where we see the giving of the law, you wouldn't notice angels in that process. But actually, Deuteronomy 33, verse 1, where Moses reflects upon the experience at Mount Sinai, reminds us that the Lord appeared with myriads of holy ones, the holy angels. And Psalm 68 verse 17 speaks of the, quote, thousands upon thousands that accompanied the Lord at Mount Sinai. And again, it's speaking of the angelic. And then this is why in the New Testament you'll get Stephen the martyr in Acts chapter 7 when he's indicting those who killed Jesus and are actually about to kill him for believing in Jesus, when he indicts them, he says, quote, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And Paul in Galatians 3, 19, describes the law as, quote, ordained by angels through an intermediary, that is, through Moses. So the point is this. The law was given by angels. That law was reliable and lawbreakers were punished. He goes on to speak of that. He speaks of transgressing the law or doing what it forbids, crossing a line you are not to cross. And he mentions disobedience, not doing what you are commanded. And each of these, he says, justly deserves 
God's retribution. And nobody got worse than they deserved. And nobody got less than they deserved unless they got mercy on account of God's grace as in the law it was manifested through the sacrifice of the animals in substitute in death for lawbreakers. I mean, the law provided for grace and forgiveness. But somebody died, either the substitute or the person. So it is today, and in fact, he says, well, if breaking the law gets you what you deserve, what do you deserve if you turn your back on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He invites us to ask that question. He, he says, we. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? John Owen asks the question, can any man perish more justly than they who refuse to be saved? So what you're seeing here in the writer of Hebrews is actually an intensification in the New Testament over the Old Testament. You're actually seeing here that the blessings and the curses are both greater under the gospel than the blessings and curses were under the law. And we think just the opposite in our day. We tend to think this. Now look, Jesus is finally here and amen he is. And so, you know, God is just really more lenient about everything than he ever was. That's not the case. Do you remember our Lord's warning to the towns that wouldn't receive the apostles he sent out to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven was in hand? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples who were going to go, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And actually, in just one chapter later, when he speaks of Capernaum, where his miracles were performed... He says, much the same. If the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment on the land of Sodom than for you. The more you know, the greater the punishment for not abiding by what you know, the greater the light the greater the judgment. God wants His gifts to be valued according to their worth. The more precious His gifts, the more we ought to be grateful for them and receive them. In other words, the greater is Christ, the worse is vengeance on those who despise His Christ. And as Philip Hughes says, if the breakers of the law did not go unpunished, certainly despisers of the gospel cannot expect to do so. And so he just simply invites us to ask ourselves this question, how shall 
I escape if I neglect such a great salvation? And I want to just exhort you to ask yourself that question. Go home at night as you are lying down in bed tonight, as you are falling to sleep tonight. Ask yourself that question. How shall I escape if I neglect the mercy offered to me in Jesus? And I just want to end this portion of a very serious section of the Bible by just reminding you that when God's Word warns us, God isn't being mean. He's actually being loving. Your mother, if she loved you, said... Don't walk out into the street without looking both ways before you do so. Because there are dangers in the street, and I love you. So be warned. Take action. Well, that's the warning we have here in Hebrews. Pay attention to Jesus. Contemplate the certain severe punishment for those who reject Jesus. And thirdly and finally, consider... God's confirmations of the truth of the gospel that leave us without excuse for rejecting the gospel. And he puts it this way, verses 3 and 4, speaking of this great salvation to be found in Jesus, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see what he's saying. It was the Lord himself who came down to tell us this good news. And then the Lord brought to himself these disciples as we read about John and Peter and Andrew and Philip. And and he sent them out to be his witnesses, to speak the truth. And God bore witness with them as they went by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about? Well, he speaks of signs. What's a sign? A sign means the point of these supernatural displays of God's power, the point of them was to point to or signify something else. What they signed, what they pointed to, was away from the miracle and to the truthfulness of the message being preached because God had appointed that messenger to preach it. Do you remember when Jesus wanted, when, well, when those who hated Jesus wanted to stone him to death for blasphemy? Why? They said, well, you uh, make yourself out to be the Son of God. And they understood that he wasn't saying, I'm some kind of created being that's less than God. He was claiming to be the Son of the Father, he was claiming divinity. He was, therefore, by their definition, blaspheming. And his response to them in John 10, 37 and following was this. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. The works signified, pointed to, he was God's man with God's message. And the writer of Hebrews then speaks of wonders. 
wonders here means what is supernatural rather than natural and inspires people to be in awe and amazement and wonder. You remember the paralyzed man that Jesus healed. First he forgave his sins before he healed him. He forgave his sins and the crowd was astonished at that. Who can do that but God, they asked. Which is easier to do, Jesus said. Well, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he immediately picked up his bed and went out from all of them. And they were all amazed. They were glorifying God. It was a wonder. They said, we never saw anything like this. And Jesus' point is, don't marvel more at the healing. But it's so that you would know I have authority to forgive sins. Because I am God's man with God's message. And he speaks of miracles in Hebrews. Miracles means working uh, of power. Works of power. Do you remember the woman who for 12 years had an unstoppable uh, uh, bleeding? And she suffered at the hands of many physicians. And she spent all that she had trying to get help for her condition. But she grew not better, but worse. She heard the reports about Jesus. She came up behind him in a crowd and she touched his garment. For she said to herself, she was thinking, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately it says, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, Well, Jesus turns to look to see who touched him, sees her, and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, and you are healed. Power went out from him. That's miracle. That was true of the apostles also in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits departed them. These are massive displays of power. And it goes on to speak of gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This was not done by the will of man, by the ingenuity of man, but by the will of the Spirit, by the working of the Spirit. When and where the Spirit pleased, He bore witness through Jesus and the apostles in all these ways, not to dazzle people, not even simply to heal, though there was that, but to persuade people that the message being preached was by the man that God sent to preach it, to convince them and persuade them that these things are true about the gospel. And so he says, the writer of Hebrew does, believe this because it is true and God confirmed it. C.S. Lewis talks about how many people try to attempt to evangelize others by trying to persuade them that Christianity is good for them without also trying to help them see that Christianity is true for them. 
And you understand how well-intentioned that could be. Christianity is good for you. Everlastingly good for you. But there are undoubtedly people who say, well, I'm going to become a Christian just to make my life better. It doesn't really matter to me whether the things are true, just whether they work to improve my lot in life here and now. And Lewis is saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You've got to embrace Christianity because it is true. Because if it's not true, then it's not good. But it's both, and God confirmed it. So don't drift away from it. Don't drift away. Pay attention, he says. Consider the dire consequences to drift away. And know that God confirmed the truth of it to you, for you. And so Jesus, will close with this, told a story about a man who planted a vineyard. You remember he told this story about a man who planted a vineyard and then he let out the land to tenants who were going to live there and work the land and shape the crop and harvest the fruit. And so he, the man, went into another country for a long time. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, and they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And, and he sent yet a third servant. This one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance is ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus tells that story and he asks this question, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers it. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. They said, no way. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He, in, he invites them to consider the Old Testament statement about the stone that is the cornerstone. Who is that? That's him. That's Jesus. Don't drift away or you'll be crushed by him. But moor yourself fast to him and you'll be saved by him. That's the message. The Lord make it so for each of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy upon us. Forgive us. You know how wayward we are, how 
prone to wander. Lord, we feel it prone to leave the God we love. You know how often we do so. Every day we struggle. We pray that you would hammer the gospel home into our hearts every day and help us to do so, even for ourselves. That we would cling to Jesus and so be saved. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing in response to the Lord.